This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with my colleague, best friend, also non-Super Bowl watcher today, (laughs) Dr. Scott. Hello. Hello. I'm very jealous of your husband, though, who gets to be home and eating something wonderful that you (laughs) fixed up for him. I made snacks before jumping on here to record. That's great. Yes, yes. So, you know, we decided to jump on and record, even though who knows what's going on around the world. We keep shooting things out of the sky. And I was like, can someone just tell me before I jump on to record two episodes? Because... Maybe it's not worth it. I don't know. <laughs> it's all balloons. It's all little spy balloons. Coming from my bunker in yeah. Dr. Shiloh's house. Just <laughs> Well, before we get started, let's talk about festivals coming up. So we have Parapod Festival April 1st in Valencia, California. We will be doing a panel presentation with Tammy and Bryce of Holly Weird Paranormal on the crimes and hauntings of the Barclay Hotel. So that's going to be... So much fun, so different for us. And I'm just excited to like have a different vibe and a different audience. So if you want to attend that, please head over to parapodfestival.com for tickets. We will have a booth as well on April 1st. So come by and say hello to us and Tammy and Bryce. And then of course, CrimeCon UK coming up. We're making our plans. That is June 9th and 10th in London. And we will be doing a main stage presentation on a presentation we've done a lot on incel 
models. We've done that for private entities. We've done that for law enforcement. And we are going to adapt it for the crime con crowd who's interested in the psychology and the mental health research that's coming out. And if you want to come say hello to us there, you can go to crimecon.co.uk for tickets and use the code confidential and you will get 10% off your ticket. So not bad because it certainly adds up when you're taking a trip somewhere. Yeah. Every little bit counts. Absolutely. And please, if you're at all already planning on meeting us there, give us a heads up so we know. It would be great to make a plan to hang with everybody, including for the meetup that we're probably going to be scheduling. So yes. yeah, let us know. Let me give you a recap on last week's episode. If you haven't had a chance, please make time to listen to the last episode we recorded. It was our monthly vintage journey into a well-known and still very perplexing case on October 16th, 1931 on a Typical Friday night in the dry desert era of Phoenix, Arizona, Winnie Ruth Judd went to her friend's bungalow for dinner and drinks. What happened next was an ever-changing mystery told by the sole survivor through years of court cases and multiple escapes from mental hospitals. Winnie, as the only survivor of the mysterious altercation, fled to L.A. by train, carrying with her some of the most disturbing luggage contents in history. So please check out episode 127 for another look back through history to unravel the conflicting motives that led to a group some murder. And interestingly, I just made the connection between that episode and (laughs) our episode. They're kind of similar in a way. Yeah. Do we have a paragraph of trigger warning for you today? (laughs) Right. Usually we're like, "Eh, here it is. Take it or leave it. But yeah, I love your verbiage you put down for our trigger warnings here. We have body horror, necrophilia, murder, desecration of bodily remains. Yeah, it's, it's a wildly different one than we normally have. So funeral homes that mishandle or deliberately mistreat human remains have made headlines and breaking news for years. We've all seen it. And there's something just gruesome that hits us in our culture today that someone would abuse the earthly remains of the dearly departed. And while funeral home regulations vary across the U.S., there are actually some states that require no inspections at all. So this is going to get... Unreal. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to get dark people. So before we get started, I just wanted to give a special shout out to one of our Patreon members, Richard, who listens to our show while he is working on bodies at a mortuary where he works. And I know this because I know him in real life. He's a wonderful man and we are his favorite podcast, he says. But I texted him last night and said, guess what our next topic is going to be? (laughs) Do you think he would, would he come on for Behind the Couch? Oh my gosh. I will ask him. Please yes. beg him. Beg him. I okay. like, we can we can give him an animal avatar on the Zoom if he right. doesn't want to show his face. He can okay. be, be a cute little fox or a kitten or something. Oh, yeah. he's hilarious. He's great. I've known him for a long time. So I I will ask. Oh, thank you. That's really exciting. And look, as our listeners know, humankind can be wonderful, warm, compassionate, and kind, or they can use the presentation of those qualities to take horrific advantage of people. And individuals who are in grief and mourning are certainly at the most vulnerable periods of their lives while trying to address the overwhelming process of planning for a loved one's funeral or not even planning for a funeral, just dealing with someone's death. Who would take advantage of those in grief? I mean, it's one of those things where in the true crime genre, we kind of come along these things where we go, who would do that? And like you and I, here we are, we're the two psychologists going, wow, there are actually more people than you would think that are actually grifters that have this span of criminal negligence to master manipulators and looking for an opportunity to take advantage of people. Yeah. So as just a bare 
smattering of examples of these kind of cases. In Los Angeles, 11 decaying bodies were discovered in a well-known Sun Valley funeral home. Sun Valley is just a little further north out of L.A. It's a suburb, but it's part of L.A. proper. The non-cremated remains of those 11 people, including infants, were horrifically found in various stages of mummification and putrefaction on not one, but two separate occasions in 2022. Wow, that's recent. In Johnstown, New York, cremation remains and decomposing human remains were discovered at an unlicensed funeral home with the director reportedly as being on the run by police and a litany of charges included multiple counts of concealment of a human corpse and failing to bury a body within a reasonable amount of time, mm. as well as endangering the welfare of a child. Just awful. It gets I worse. Know. And in February 2009, former morgue employee Kenneth Douglas, who was serving a prison sentence for corpse abuse when the police DNA searches linked him to the abuse of two additional bodies. During the mm -hmm. deposition, the morgue employee admitted that he had probably slept with at least 100 corpses. And I'm using air quotes when I say slept. Okay, my first clinical impression is gross. And that's understandable <laughs> yes. as the discussion of these types of crimes. You know, it brings up a response that we're pretty much resigned or we're designed to have a reaction to. Mm -hmm. While the sexual act on the remains of deceased individuals will raise disgust in a lot of people, the relationship to death and human remains has really changed over the last couple of thousand years. Keeping dead bodies for long periods of time in the home is yeah. something that used to be done that is no longer done. Bringing people out of their tombs and having them engage in a village celebration still happens in parts of the world. It doesn't happen in Southern California. Right. And I just want to... love, right? Well, I mean, we'll get to it, but I just want to circle back to my giggle earlier because I think we should add gross to clinical impressions handbooks <laughs> of how we should be able to write about this in reports. Yeah. Yikes. But yeah, act actually, these are just a brief few of the numerous cases that have emerged over the years. So many that we couldn't possibly cover them all, unfortunately. So let's look at some research here. As with the types of crimes that are committed, there are a range of motivators from quick money, opportunity for working with a vulnerable population, professional carelessness, antisocial factors that violate the rights of others, a concept that we call behavioral drift, and of course, necrophilia, of which there are three categories that we'll get to in describing. But what else should we be talking about here when we talk about the research behind why people could be acting this way in a given respected profession? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Is it like you were setting up? There's a number of motivators. And when you were talking about quick money, quick money is actually related to the number of states that don't require licensure or annual inspections. Mm. You know, so if you're running sort of a shingle front operation with no license and no oversight, then you can grift people for as much as you want, as quick as you want, and and lie about what you're doing with the remains. But, and maybe even like hop state to state or jurisdiction to jurisdiction yeah, and just open up a new one. Absolutely. Like a, a regular con man. And I think that that is really important too, is bringing in the idea that this brings in elements from our previous episodes about confidence men. Yeah. But I want to talk about one theory that's really cool that when I was researching opportunity crimes, I didn't realize that that's actually based on a theory. And I'm going to read this quote from the book that I found. Crime opportunity theory is an explanation that implies and suggests that criminal offenders engage in a rational decision-making choice procedure. They choose targets that offer 
a high reward, and little effort and risk. The occurrence of a crime depends on two things. The presence of at least one motivated offender who is ready and willing to engage in a crime and the conditions of the environment in which that offender is situated. Opportunities for crime. All crimes require opportunity, but not every opportunity is followed by a crime. Interesting way to put that. I Mm -hmm. like that. It's very simple and straightforward. Similarly, a motivated offender is necessary for the commission of a crime but not sufficient. A large part of his this theory focuses on how variations in lifestyle or routine activities affect the opportunities for crime. So mm-hmm. I love how it just nails down is that there's a rational choice procedure there. High reward, little effort and risk. Because right. especially in a crematorium, it's like, well, you're getting a box of, of cremains. Do you know that they're your relatives or is it just some mm-hmm. clay from down by the river or something? I mean, it would be simpler to get away with that, especially with a relatively low-income population that still is going to be charged a lot of money because these these things are expensive, actually. So what's your take on that crime opportunity theory? Well, for cases like this, it's kind of, it made me think of, and we can say this for other types of, again, like con men and grifters, but it it's the question I always ask myself when I'm learning and reading and, you know, when we're talking about cults, because I always think like it's this chicken or the egg thing that I contemplate. Like, did they go into this with this ill intention of I'm going to build this empire and I have this master plan and I'm going to be able to get money, sex, power out of it? Or did they go in with really good intentions at first and then ended up sort of seeing the opportunity, if you will, of what could really be done and what they could gain when they started to act in a malicious manner with the intent sort of after the fact? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I think that probably brings us to our next really our concept here when we talk about behavioral drift is we mentioned this in previous episodes, especially when referring to certain professions and people and those who hold roles of responsibility and then they end up behaving badly. So we can define behavioral drift as a tendency to deviate from the ethical standards under the pressure of circumstances and in the absence of external oversight. An area in which there's actually a lot of literature about this is when we look at the military and treatment of war criminals and prisoners and detainees, because we've all seen that go horribly wrong, of course. And the the DOD talks about behavioral drift as commonly observed in detention and other settings in which individuals have control or power over others' activities of daily life or general functioning. And that just came out really like 2019, fairly new, where they've started talking about this and doing research into it and looking at it in these circumstances. And it's a closed system on top of that. Oh, so God, it's, yeah. you know, control, contained environment, closed system. That's not a good mix. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it, I'm sure it was closed and under wraps for a very long time. And more recently, very recently, they've been starting to examine it. And behavioral drift can be further defined as the continual reestablishment of new, often unstated and unofficial standards of behavior in an unintended direction. Hence the term sort of drifting, right? It often occurs when a established official standards of behavior are are not followed and then not enforced. And contributions to this change in standards includes ambiguous guidance, poor supervision, lack of training, lack of oversight, and certain psychological and social pressures can greatly increase the likelihood of behavioral drift. So again, going back to the Department of Defense, they had a directive addressing this that acknowledged 
quote, behavioral drift is detrimental to the mission and may occur very quickly without careful oversight and mechanisms and training. So again, think like Stanford prison experiment. (laughs) Again, getting too much power, treating people like objects. And really, this can go downhill fast, even though we know now that Stanford prison study wasn't as clean cut as they made it seem. You know, there's still some beneficial psychological research to be gained from that. Yeah. And there's also what's lovely about the Stanford prison experiments is that we keep looking at it. And thankfully, there was this information that came forward recently to really kind of break away the mythology that it was like as clean as it had been promoted as years. And then there's also some additional research that I find really fascinating that is honing in and focusing on the majority of the people utilized in that experiment were college age white males. And that is, you know, that has its own challenges in trying to generalize that to the general public. Would a group of women from Mm -hmm. various backgrounds, would they have acted in the same way? And you can pretty much assume like, no, it would be a very different outcome. So just as a total tangent, although super interesting, in 2016, the APA revised its ethics code to include a statement that psychologists do not participate in, facilitate, assist, or otherwise engage in torture defined as any act which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person or in any other cruel, inhumane, or degrading behavior. This was post 9-11, and it pertained really to the use of military psychologists, which is a whole other can of worms. Like, (laughs) I think we could probably do three back-to-back episodes on that. And I will say was really beautifully and tragically portrayed in a couple of Law & Order episodes. Oh, really? Um, Oh, yeah. They had like a couple of military psychologists that were having to defend themselves in court for basically huh. torturing torturing yeah. people and they would like you know just even the the way they would frame things it's like oh yeah it was a constructive restraint or you know it's like no you tied somebody by their arms behind their back yeah. and hung them from a wall it's like yeah I don't know. yeah but in regards to behavioral drift do you think it applies here or is it just more of a combination of carelessness and callousness i, I don't think we know mm, right i don't know I, I i'm going to lean towards a combination Okay. Probably. But there are cases that we know of in other professions where behavioral drift happens and and it's not necessarily, you know, when you you catch that person that, you know, there's this callousness behind them. We see it in every profession, but the ones that get the most attention are those with the most at risk for the clientele or populations that they serve, right? So like aviation, the medical field, law enforcement. But in this case with funeral homes and mortuaries, we're seeing this in a sense that they have the ultimate power over people because the people in this case are dead yeah, and they can start to treat them just like objects. right? So there is a different dynamic here, but I think it becomes mundane the death, the grief, the families, you know, client after client after client. And I believe there needs to be some healthy compartmentalization, of course, for doing a job like this. But I could see behavioral drift happening as a result of being desensitized to the work that you're doing and or the business and money coming first and getting greedy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl. An instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street. Accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Yeah, good points. Thank you. Let's start with the Sun Valley, California example, which it's technically in LA. After complaints were made about proprietor Mark Allen by the next of kin of his victims. An investigation was opened and handled by the L.A. County Coroner's Office and the LAPD. The complaints asserted that the mortuary had not released the remains of their relatives to them, and a total of 22 criminal charges were filed by the city of Los Angeles against Mark Allen, the former and for a while on the run, owner of the Mark B. Allen Mortuary and Cremation Services in Sun Valley, California. A total of 22 criminal charges were filed by the city of Los Angeles against Mark Allen, the former and for a while on the run owner of the Mark B. Allen Mortuary and Cremation Services in Sun Valley. So during the first leg of the investigation, the coroner's office, their investigators found that five bodies were improperly stored in conditions that were speeding up the process of putrefaction. Basically, the bodies were left unrefrigerated, but that was really just the beginning in this case. The charges, again, 22 of them, were filed after the non-cremated human remains of 11 individuals, including infants, were found on two occasions in 2022. The remains of the deceased individuals were found in various stages of decay and mummification. I could never be a news reporter. You did it. That was good. LA City Attorney Mike Fewer stated, we're fighting to get justice for these families in this incredibly sad and shocking situation. 11 people died, including very young children. And the funeral director hired to compassionately prepare the bodies for burial, allegedly just let them rot with neither the decency nor the dignity that all of our loved ones deserve. Their deaths are one tragedy, and this alleged monstrous mistreatment is a second tragedy. There's been nothing like this since I've been city attorney, and we've prosecuted more than 300,000 cases. I remember that press conference. I do too. He was fired up. Yeah. And he's such a like calm, chill guy. Yeah. <laughs> those poor families. I mean, just I dealing with all those poor families. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. Allen received charges of violating California Health and Safety Code for each of the 11 bodies. And the California Code explicitly states that, quote, every person who deposits or disposes of any human remains in any place except in a cemetery is guilty of a misdemeanor. 
And although those charges were filed as misdemeanors, another section of violations that was applied to Allen stemmed from his position and responsibility as a funeral director. Those violations of the section, quote, shall be punishable by imprisonment in a county jail, not exceeding one year, by a fine not exceeding $10,000, or both that imprisonment and fine, end quote, which is pretty standard for anything when we're looking at misdemeanors here in California. Right. So the mortuary who was owned by Mark Allen is now closed and phone numbers for the business are now disconnected. I do encourage anyone looking at our resources to Google his name and mortuary uh-huh. and get a picture of what this guy looked like. Because not only is he an interesting look, okay. he had an oil painting of himself that was put in the hallway of the mortuary. And that's what's no. used. Yeah. So use Le, le Google and take a look at Mr. Allen. Anyway, remember, folks, that under California's Health and Safety Code, every person who deposits or disposes of any human remains in any place except in a cemetery is guilty of a misdemeanor. So if you're coming out here for a visit, remember that because apparently people just drop off body parts like the guy who walked into a police station last week here in Southern California and dropped off a human jawbone and left. I mean, yeah. he didn't say anything. It's like, hey. Hey, I guess somebody dropped this, so I'm bringing it in. I mean, I, I think there are some random animal parts. I found them too. And then just like walks in and walks out. Like, but they didn't what? charge him, did they? I, I don't know if they charged him, but they I did find not. him. It was okay. here in Southern California, right? Yep, San Bernardino. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Trishilo. <laughs> right around the corner from your domicile. I used to work over there in San Bernardino. But when I was working as a police officer, there was someone who dropped off their cremated remains of their parents right behind the city library because their parent loved to read. So they were just going to put them there. Yeah. <laughs> and this, I mean, this person was elderly themselves. So I don't know what was going on, but that's just a story that I was reminded of recently. You can't do that. You can deposit them in your home, like have the remains somewhere in your home. Or a yard or, I mean, cremains are allowed to, you know, body parts are supposed to go to a cemetery. Yes, but people yes, yes. often take ashes into nature or plant them in an oh, ocean. Sure. Like a natural cemetery. Do not take them to Disneyland. They have mm. cameras looking because yeah. people like to dispose of cremains on the Haunted Mansion ride. That happens all the time. I know. I know. I'm still like, I told my dad, I'll go to jail for you if you want me to spread them on Dodger <laughs> Stadium's outfield. I'm I'm here for it. I'll do it. Yeah. So that's... Be be warned, I guess, if you're coming yes. to California is what you're trying to tell people. We, we actually do have legislation about these things, so be yeah. careful. So from California to Ohio, a lawsuit over the abuse of three women's corpses by a morgue attendant was settled in 2009. So former morgue attendant Kenneth Douglas was convicted of violating corpses in 1982 and 1991, and he was sentenced to six years in prison. So that seems like a long time ago. Yes, it was. And I know I started off mentioning 2009, so just... Stand by. This will all make sense in a moment. The family of three victims filed a suit against county officials alleging negligent supervision of Douglas and causing the family's emotional distress. The lawsuit said Douglas, who was a morgue attendant from 1976 until 1992, regularly drank alcohol and used drugs while on duty. An official should have known that he could have harmed corpses. Court records stated that Douglas admitted having intercourse while drunk and high on drugs with the bodies of those women whose families are suing. The first case dated to the 1982 stabbing death of 19-year-old Karen Sue Range. So the corpse abuse was discovered finally 
about 25 years later. And they only found this out because authorities were conducting DNA testing for a court appeal in the slaying of Miss Range. So it's all these years later. Yeah. Evidence has come forward. We're going to go and test this. And what they found was that the bodily fluids found on her body was a match for Douglas. So then they sent a press release out. An attorney that was representing one of the families said that the case had been settled because all of this stuff was flying back and forth, trying to figure out what happened. And the final settlement was not known, but it did include payments of up to $800,000 to the families. And then I think that there were additional things that were added, but it's all been kind of shut down where it's not part of public record anymore. Overall, it sounds like that the families were going to continue a pursuit of additional monies in the range of two point four or five million dollars. So I don't know how any of the families would ever get that from this particular incarcerated individual that maybe they're doing it for, you know, to set a press and set a point. Yeah. Well, and I think they ended up, didn't they end up filing suit against the county? Yes. So there's gonna be a lot more money there, which makes sense. But how horrific. I mean, not only is your loved one murdered, and and it sounds like, of course, they're having to, this is completely drawn out because now they're retesting DNA on her body and this family is just going through it for years, decades, really, and then to come to learn this. So he must have been in the system if they ma- they ran this DNA and tested it. Right. He, it came out in all the research that I was looking at that he had a record. You know, he had already been incarcerated yeah. for other things and that comes up as part of the story a little bit later on as well. Yeah, got it. So in this release given by the attorney, he said, quote, the sexual abuse of the bodies of these young women in the morgue was shocking and horrible. The families have fought for justice since they first discovered the abuse six years ago. They were ready for trial, but are satisfied that the settlement, including the non-economic terms, will help all of them find some peace. So our perpetrator, Kenneth Douglas, was a married father of four and an employee of the Hamilton County Morgue for 16 years. And he worked solitary night shifts, admitted in his deposition that he had sex with up to 100 dead bodies. Douglas admitted to removing one of the victim's bodies from the storage for about four hours following its delivery. He then proceeded to drink a large amount of alcohol, used cocaine, and then removed her from the freezer in order to, quote, have sex with her. The abusive act on human remains allegedly occurred while Douglas was drunk or high on drugs, with him asserting that I would just get on top of them and pull my pants down. The actions went unknown for years until there was a crazy twist in this story in 2008. So that's when Douglas's DNA was found on the body of a 19-year-old female victim who had died in 1992. So all these years later, reports indicate that Douglas would regularly have sex with the remains while they were in queue for autopsy. And as Douglas had previously been convicted of a drug trafficking offense, he had been required by Ohio state law to provide a DNA sample. So when it ran through a database, the sample matched the 1982 sample from the victim. So interestingly enough, yet another twist. Yeah, because the DNA, which implicated Douglas, actually exonerated the murderer of the victim from the sexual assault charges that he was found guilty of as well. After posing as a door-to-door salesman, the killer brutally murdered Carol Range. While he pleaded guilty to the murder of Miss Range, he stated repeatedly that he never quote-unquote completed the sexual act, which is an interesting way to put it, but I get what he's saying. And in court terms, I'm sure that's... 
how attorneys frame it sometimes. But this wasn't believed by the prosecution as there was a great deal of DNA and fluid found on her corpse. His exoneration from that aspect of the crime actually got him off death row, which is interesting. That is interesting. And also, sorry for, I mean, I'm just going to give people a trigger warning. For something that's gross. I, we're not exaggerating when we're pulling this information on the research for this case. There was a great deal of DNA and fluid found Got on it. her corpse, yeah. which, I, and I'm saying this purely from a scientific standpoint, if he was under the influence of so much alcohol and so much mm. cocaine, like what was going on in this guy's system that, you know, yeah. Well, I I mean, and if this is the victim that he had removed, like he said, for four hours. So is he working in terms of like, all right, I have this certain amount of time I'm going to spend with this body. I mean, that could be multiple sexual acts that he's performing. I just am so disturbed by the fact that you figured that out so quickly. (laughs) Oh, my God. What is Everybody, wrong with these you? These are our defense mechanisms coming out right now <laughs> oh my God. to this terribly I'm sorry. horrible topic. We apologize. Topic. We apologize. But like, but, oh, that does make yeah, a lot of I sense. Mean, I get it. Yeah. And not that he said like, okay, I got four hours. I'm going to time, you know, nothing like that. But if he's like, if this is his, his modus operandi, like what he does, then I imagine he says like, okay, I got a period of time with this body. I'm going to get high as fuck and I'm going to you know, do what I'm going to do. And so then we have, you know, this guy that murders her saying, no, I didn't do any of that stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, okay, buddy. You know, this is not what the evidence is showing. And can you imagine the family discovering this? Oh my like, Lord. Like it's just, That's what, I'm saying. what an incredible conflict of emotions that they, because we know that this is just the shell. I mean, regardless of what I your, know. what your belief system is, you know, that, that your loved one is gone, but still this is the memory of the, them. And this is something, you know, and then for uh-huh. all these years later for this to come out, like that's just got to be a gut punch that yeah. requires you to rewrite your personal history. Yeah, yeah, it's that's rough. Back to Douglas, while Hamilton County asserts that it cannot be held accountable for the actions of its employees, which is mind boggling because that ain't yeah, how, okay. that's not how other counties work at all. But despite that, the Ohio Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that a jury could find the county's former coroner and morgue both recklessly and wantonly neglectful in their responsibility to supervise Douglas. So not surprisingly, Douglas's case was actually the fourth lawsuit that Hamilton County had faced for improperly handling human remains. What Mm. the farg? Come on. Yeah, I know. Well, and at the very, very least, like he's just drinking and doing drugs while he's doing his job and you're going to tell me you can't be held responsible for that there has to be some sort of checks and balances i don't know why why are we letting anyone work around dead bodies alone like can't we just have a buddy system where there's two people on duty doing this Oof, yeah i know we'll have to ask our friend we have Richard, to we, we're gonna have so on. many questions we are gonna have oh so many God. questions for him yeah i know so besides dna the most significant piece of evidence that was brought to trial was testimony provided by douglas's wife when she called the morgue to report that her husband had come home from work smelling like sex and alcohol mm, okay and she mm. yeah she received the reply from a supervisor or administrator that, quote, whatever happens on county property in county time is county business. So she tried to tell them, like, my husband is drinking while he's working, not just drinking, he smells like sex too, which who knows what she was thinking, but they just 
totally brushed it off. Like, whatever, lady. Maybe they thought he was bringing women who were alive back to have sex with them. Probably. At his job. So Douglas served a three-year prison sentence that included 18 months for corpse abuse and 18 months for a parole violation on an unrelated drug conviction. That's fascinating because I, coming into this in preparation for this episode, I would have had no idea what a sentence for this type of charge would have been. I know. You know, I like I couldn't even so have conceptualize yeah. it. I would have thought that it would have been more. This is leading us to a discussion of necrophilia. So what are the descriptions and the psychological foundations for necrophilia? It's a thing. It's been in horror movies. It's been in various cultures around the world in crime. Yeah, but thankfully not a very common practice. It's a specific paraphilia. And for review... A paraphilia is an experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. It's also been defined as sexual interest in anything other than a consenting human partner. But the attraction for clinical purposes has to rise to the level of inducing distress in the person as a result of the attraction. The perpetrators are overwhelmingly male. Necrophilia is rarer than sexual homicide and Necrophilia among morgue workers is far more common than people think. And a study published in the Journal of the Bulletin of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law found more people used corpses for sexual pleasure in the 122 cases that they reviewed for their study. Yes. So that study was by Rossman and Resnick. And Dr. Philip Resnick, actually, I'm going to be using some of his research in next week's episode. Oh, cool. Listen for that name again. But their research article was entitled Sexual Attraction to Corpses, a Psychiatric Review of Necrophilia. And again, those authors reviewed 122 cases that reported the manifesting of necrophilic acts or just fantasies. And basically from studying those cases, they broke the people up into three different categories. So the first category was necrophilic homicide, which is the act of committing murder in order to obtain a corpse for the purpose of sex. So very clean cut. That's the motive for murder because they want to act out this paraphilic act. And then the second category, it's just called regular necrophilia. Like <laughs> It's literally I, called that in the research paper is regular ne- necrophilia. Dr. Resnick, yes. come on. Call me next time you need a category <laughs> named. <laughs> so regular necrophilia, which is just the desire to have sex with remains. Although what they did not do is subdivide this category into like situational versus non-situational cases, which we would have liked to have maybe seen. Is this opportunistic or not? That sort of thing. Yeah, because is the paraphilia extant anyway? Like I'm going to, mm-hmm. if I if I have the opportunity, am I going to do this? So with regular necrophilia, they're saying it, the way I'm, because I know you're going to talk about the third category in a second, the way I'm seeing this differentiated is that they have the desire to have sex with remains, but they're not killing anyone to have sex with remains, they are finding their ways into positions to where they have access to bodies. Right. And it's not just deceased human individuals. There are people who also fantasize about having sex with deceased animals. Hmm. But those with necrophilic drives are generally able to and do engage in sex with other living individuals as well. Right. So necrophilic fantasy is more like this just area of, of thought and fantasy mm-hmm. for right. the purposes of maybe masturbation or completing the sex act when they're with someone who is a living partner. But it does not exclude or indicate that they're not able to have sex 
with people Correct. who are live. I already know like five of my friends that are not going to be able to tolerate this episode. I, I can already know. tell. I'm so sorry, folks. How many of you are still with us? I don't even think they made it through. <laughs> and those that stay with us, thank you. You're so patient. And but thank in... you. And Shiloh, thank you for, for pointing out that we were both having a bit of an ab reaction. Like we got a yeah. little bit of the discomfort giggles and that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we're going to probably leave it in because that's important sure. for people to know that, you know, when you talk about difficult things, you do have reactions like this. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I wanted to add before we move away from this is that, okay, with necrophilic fantasy, the other way that they can fulfill this desire is if they have a consenting partner that will sometimes play the role of a dead body. So what they'll do is they maybe even will take like a cold bath or ice down their body. So their core temperature goes down. And then of course, there's just very little movement in sort of acting like they're dead during the sexual act. I know this came up when the whole like Bill Cosby thing came out. People were like, is he a necrophiliac? Because he wants them unconscious, which is different. I'm not saying that that couldn't be, I have no idea, right? Like I haven't evaluated. Bill Certainly Cosby. the consent Shocker. issue is is the big deal there is like sure. your, your partner is consenting and they're laying in a cold tub. In fact, that was actually the subject of a very, very famous Dear Abby column oh. that got printed in the newspaper, I think in the early 80s, wow. where a woman wrote in saying, this is the thing that my husband likes me to do. And she was like, you need what? to get out of that. <laughs> but like it, it's consenting partners and no one's getting yeah. hurt and you're understanding this is part of your partner's kink. And if you sure. don't like it, that's okay too. That's completely yes. fine. You don't have to, you don't have to sign on to things that make you that uncomfortable. Right. Right. Well, so this research asserted that number one, neither psychosis, developmental delay, or sadism are inherent in necrophilia, but that the most common motive for engaging in the act is a way to engage in sex with an unrejecting an unresisting partner. Isn't Boy, that, that tells you, yeah, that tells you a lot. That yes. really tells you a lot. Well, there was a point number two that necrophiles will often follow career paths or pursue occupations that create the opportunity to put them in contact with corpses. But some necrophiles who had employment-related access to corpses also committed homicide. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. a Venn diagram. We're not saying all But we're saying in some situations, opportunistic killers would seek that out as well. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster.
Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I mean, and similar to other paraphilias that we see, like pedophilia, and we know that generally they're going to have hundreds of victims because they put themselves in a position where they have access to their victims. So thought maybe we'd leave off with something a little lighter, shall we? Yes, yes. <laughs> although... Um, boosh, clean the palate. Yeah, Whew. okay. Okay, let's do this together, everyone. And although terrible in their own way as well, there are many ways that folks can be scammed while trying to say goodbye to their loved ones. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And the funeral rule, which is capital, the funeral rule, was first issued in 1984 and enforced by the Federal Trade Commission. And that requires funeral homes to disclose the cost of every item and service they provide. But pricing information can be hard to come by. So a 2022 study by the Funeral Consumers Alliance and the Consumer Federation of America surveyed over a thousand funeral homes in 35 state capitals and found that only 18% posted their complete price list online, which was hardly up from 2017 when they last did this. The FTC is now considering updating the rule to require that all of the prices have to be posted online from here on out because they aren't even really going above and beyond to give some transparency to their potential clients. Yeah. And remember, it's not all homes that do this. There are some that are incredibly reputable and and wonderful. Now, remember, it is also a business, right? I mean, it's a a for-profit business, but for the ones that are, you know, trying to make a quick buck, there are some common ways that they try and scam you out of money. Some examples would include they insist that you purchase a casket even if your loved one is being cremated, right? They try upselling you to a pricey protective casket that they claim will preserve the body longer. It won't. And why would you want it to anyway? I mean, that's such I a bizarre don't. thing. Yeah. I think I think we're all shifting towards like I don't want to be dug up and a thousand years. Yeah. And Can we just decompose as quickly as possible? Yeah, please? exactly. Just turn me into worm food. Lastly, they will generate prepaid plans that have their own pitfalls. Regulations for prepaid funerals vary widely from state to state, and you might not be protected if, for example, the funeral home that you dealt with goes out of business or you move out of the state where you bought that plan. Mm-hmm. So you need to find out about cancellation policies and what regulations your state has in place to ensure that the money you paid will be there for the funeral when the time comes. So there's some warning signs. If the funeral home, like you were talking about earlier, if they don't show you an itemized price list before you discuss arrangements, that is a big red flag. And that's required by what you were calling the funeral rule. Another warning sign is if a funeral director tries to make you feel guilty for not purchasing the most expensive products and services. Ugh, fuck off, no. (laughs) Right, right, right. Sorry. But that does happen. It still does happen. Oh, that's horrible. So how to protect yourself from these scams. We have a few tips for you. 
And this is all just want to give my respects to the AARP who provided these. They have a great website that will help you navigate this if you need to check on this a little bit later. But shop around and ask questions because funeral homes are required, again, to provide all of those prices, even over the phone if asked. And hopefully you can view it online before you even speak to anyone. Again, be wary of package deals that promise a discount on the casket. They often more than make up the difference in fees and unnecessary services on a different end. A funeral home cannot force you to buy a package that includes items you don't want. So I think that's really important. Consider buying a casket or urn from a local store or online. You might pay less and a funeral home can't legally refuse your choice or require you to be present when it's delivered. Mm. Get a written statement before you pay that shows exactly what you're buying and understand what you're getting in a prepaid funeral contract. Does the plan cover only the merchandise, like the casket, vault, or does it include services also? I just want to be really clear, just so there's no like bait and switch at some point, right? And then, as we said before, it was kind of a duh moment, but don't buy a casket if your loved one's being cremated. The FTC says there's no state or local law that requires this. So you can go for a less expensive alternative. It's okay. You need to do whatever is right for your family and the means of your family and not feel like you're getting pushed into a corner because of the emotion that's happening at that time. And maybe... You know, having someone, this is going to be so personal, but like having someone who's just a little bit more removed, if you feel like it's too much to really go over these financial decisions is a good idea. I'm so glad you said that. When my brother passed, we had such a circle of friends that very much cared for him, but being one small step away from being a family member just proved vital to helping us through that. It was really great. And then when I lost a sister a couple of years ago, she did something for her family that was really great is she had it all spelled out. She had every single thing in a bullet list, exactly how she wanted it. Everything was paid. Everything was like ready to go. Like what a great gift to give to someone, to give to your your children or your relatives to just make it easier. And not to be a total shill for Costco, but you know, you can also <laughs> purchase or pre-purchase a coffin from their online selection. And even you can see them on display near the checkout. I've I've been lined up with like four enormous bag of chips and like 20 pounds of cheddar cheese. I think, mm, you know what? I might need one of those one day. There are also some very inexpensive ways to enter a body as well as working with the Neptune Society that will prep you for a burial at sea that's really inexpensive. And then there's also a really cool, beautiful, lovely, handmade pine bookshelf that actually comes apart and turns into a coffin. Very Mm. simple pine box that you can use as a bookshelf for years. It doesn't look like a coffin when it's the bookshelf. I know. Isn't that cool? You're like, I'll get a lot of use out of this. I know. I would love that. Now, I have already put my desires into paper and I'm going to get what's called a natural burial. That's where my cremains will be returned to a natural setting like a forest. My sister, like I said, had made that plan for a funeral. It was one of the most beautiful settings Mm -hmm. that I've ever seen. But I would like that for myself. I know other people like more traditional things. Just make your plan. Give that, be that, do that as a gift to yourself and to your loved ones. Make the plan ahead of time. Yeah, there's a lot of options. So we have some examples here of funeral homes in entertainment. The series Six Feet Under really gives the audience a view of what it's like to work in a family mortuary, even though no criminal acts were portrayed in regards to their family business. They do make a real point, though, to show how 
how very detached modern society can be from the process of dying and letting go of our loved ones. So if you get a chance to watch it, highly advise, love it a lot. Yeah. God, it's probably been... It's been 20 Over years decade, at least. Because yeah. if Michael C. Hall was in it before Dexter, right? Right, exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, and then of course there is the film Bernie, not Weekend at Bernie's. That's a whole different thing. That's that a whole different relates. <laughs> But Bernie is a 2011 American biographical black comedy film directed by Richard Linklater and written by Linklater and Skip Hollinsworth. The film stars Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, Matthew McConaughey, and it's based on Hollinsworth's January 1998 article, Midnight in the Garden of East Texas. And that was published in Texas Monthly Magazine, which again, every time this comes up as a reference for us, I'm like, why is this magazine just always in our research? But they must write great crime stuff too. So it explores the 1996 murder of 81-year-old millionaire Marjorie Nugent in Carthage, Texas by her 39-year-old companion, Bernie Tide, who's played by Jack Black. So Bernie was, an assistant mortician in the local community, beloved member. He was really becomes the only friend of this woman. And she was recently widowed, very wealthy. And the people of the community hated her, thought of her as very cold and unpleasant. And they, after striking up this friendship, become inseparable, traveling together, lunching together, being out and about together. But his social life really starts to suffer because of her constant demands for his attention. And long story short, he ends up murdering her after her constant emotional terrorism of possessiveness and persistent nagging drones on for quite a while. And for nine months, he makes up excuses about her absence while using her money for good causes to support local businesses and neighbors. But finally, Tide's stockbroker is doing some investigation of why some things aren't being paid. And this ends up with her family getting involved, the police getting involved, and a search of her house. And they find her corpse in a freezer. So he does end up getting arrested and he confesses to killing her, claiming that her emotional abuse was a mitigating circumstance. And despite confessing for what we don't hear very often is a very good reason or motive, a lot of the citizens of this small Texas town come to his defense, some even asserting that she deserved to die. And they end up doing a change of venue for the trial. And despite the absence of evidence of premeditation, they do find him guilty and he's charged and imprisoned for life. So this film had fantastic reviews on just everything, the writing, the acting, the whole feel of it as a Black comedy. And critic Jonathan Rosenbaum called the film a masterpiece, saying the writing is, quote, so good that the humor can't be reduced to simple satire. A whole community winds up speaking through the film, and it has a lot to say. In fact, it's hard to think of many other celebrations of small-town American life. They're quite as rich, as warm, and as complexly layered within at least recent years. So it sounds very charming when you just listen to his description, but it's about this mortician and the murder of his bestie. Uh, I have mm. to go look for that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I had no out. idea of that. I mean, I think I barely remember a couple of clips of Shirley MacLaine doing her thing of being a, yep. a, a harridan and she's 
a great actress anyway. Yeah. So I'll we'll have to look for that. This one is probably a terrible example, and, and I'll I will take the shame for this. But in one of the iterations of Scary Movie, which of course is a takeoff on the Scream series, yes, yes, there is a funeral scene of one of the characters who dies in the previous movie, and everything that could possibly go wrong at her funeral to oh, her coffin yes. and to the corpse happens. And I just I feel horrible for laughing at it because it's the most horrible physical humor. But it also is something to remember that abuse of a corpse is often used for humorous mm -hmm. exposition in movies. For those of us that are fans of Young Frankenstein, there's a whole scene where the corpse's arm flops out of the coffin and he has to fake that it's his own hand and the cop is yep. shaking it like, God, why is your hand so cold? Anyway. <laughs> Tells him to go drink a nip of whiskey to warm up. Right. We just watched it last weekend. It's that's so, so good. Wow. You guys, thank you for sticking with us. And if you didn't stick with us, that's okay. We appreciate everyone here. Thanks for being part of our show. And we're going to see you next week on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye, guys. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA not so confidential. Bye, folks. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 
1-800-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.